All right, I gotta, I gotta do something here. You, you see that right there? It, Acts weeks forty-two. Now, some of you ha, are are newer here, and we are loving having you. But you've come in, and it's like it's Acts every Sunday. Acts every Sunday. And I just want to remind everybody here why we are going through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, topic by topic of what it brings into the on our plate. But it's real simple, okay? Because if you wasn't here when we started, now you need to know why. Listen, God's plan in the earth was his church. That's his plan. And what we learn about is the plan and and how he put it together and how he brought people together and how he got them going in the right direction and how he kept a fire and a flame in their hearts. And that's what we need to remember because it may be 2,000 years later, but we are an extension of that very same church. In February, we're going to celebrate 140 years in this location. But guys, this church has been 2,000 years. Because whether you're here or you're in another Bible preaching church, you're a part of the body of Christ. And the church that he started is the church that needs to finish strong. And that's what we're trying to do is make sure that we are dotting our I's and crossing our T's and being the church that he started and that he wants us to be in this generation. All right, so let's get started. Week 42. Yes, sir, it is. I'm going to give you a quick review in case you weren't here last week, bring you up to speed on on some things. The uh, church in Antioch was thrown into some confusion because people from the Judea area, Jerusalem area, came up and began to say, uh, you, you Gentiles have got to be circumcised. And that's not what they were taught. And so Paul and Barnabas um, were, were sent down as a delegation, you might say, to go to Jerusalem to find out if this is what's going on, if this is you know something that's, that's new that they're supposed to be. Anyway, when they get there, they find out it's actually worse than that. Because what they begin to find out, as we talked about last week, that there were there was proponents for not just circumcision, but all of the law of Moses. So that brings us to where we're at right here. Because as we started with last week, the law nullifies grace. You can't have a mixed message. Everybody, listen. If you can do anything to save yourself, There's no grace. There's no grace in that. We could not save ourselves. We cannot earn it. We we can keep all of the good rules there might be, but we cannot be saved because of any of those things. We are saved because of the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood applied to our lives is the reason why we're saved. By grace, through faith. That's the gospel message. We can't stray from it. But anyway, so we're going to pick up uh, where we left off, you might say. So now in verse 13, Acts 15, 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first, I guess that would be Simon here. Anyway, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, let's get started here. Now, James here that's being referenced, he's, this is the brother of Jesus. He is the leader or the head elder, you may say, of the church in Jerusalem. History will remember him as the bishop of Jerusalem. Uh, he was a very strict Jew, but he was also a very wise and discerning person. So after hearing the debates for and against, uh, he reminds them scripturally that God's plan has always been this restoration of the Jewish people, but the, the influx of the nations coming into it. And so he makes references. Actually, that passage there is, is sort of a, a, a conglomeration of things from Amos 9, Isaiah 43, and Jeremiah 14. But the prophetic scriptures that were given right here were a promise that God was going to do a, a work among the Jews and simultaneously among the Gentiles. And that was basically what he had to say, uh, that this was God's will. It has always been God's will. And the council received it well. And they were like, everybody do that. You ready? That's right. Jews, Gentiles, one big church, one body of believers. Well, that's where they were at. <clears throat> and then on the basis of the scriptures that he shared, he gave them wise counsel. And as I said, this is good counsel because it's even prevalent for us today. So here it is. Therefore, my judgment is that you should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now that term right there, not trouble, don't trouble them. That's actually going back to what we talked about last week. If you remember, Peter made this comment. He said, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Sometimes, not a lot of times, but sometimes logic and scripture hits the same place. And, and basically, you know, in a way you might say this is quite logical. Why force the Gentiles to do something that they wouldn't ever understand and really can't do because we've been trying for years and we can't do it. And there never really was anybody that could live out all of Moses' commandments. So why trouble them with something that we can't get right? Basically good wisdom, right? So, they walked away from there with this mentality. You know what? It is impossible to request the Jews, to, or the Gentiles to do what us Jews have been trying to do for 
a thousand years. And here's the good news, folks. The law cannot get you right with God. No rule, no regulations, none of it. You can keep the Ten Commandments and go to hell. Because the Ten Commandments do not include acknowledging Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. You see, the rules are not sufficient. All right. But in the midst of all of that, he dictated four things. I'm going to call them three. But he dictated some things that it would be very good to send out for the, Jewish, for the Gentile people to know, to make a part of their life and practice. Now, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Uh, the first one was this, abstain from things polluted by idols. Now, we know in 1 Corinthians 8 that Paul talks about food sacrificed to idols, right? And how it was a huge stumbling block for many. But the truth of the matter is this is way beyond that. This issue is not really about food, so let's don't think about food. All right, don't do the things polluted, that are, you know, things that are associated with the idols as in food. Let's think about everything that's associated with the world. Okay? Think of it that way. Whether you agree or disagree, bottom line is this. There are certain things that if you do those things, unbelievers will question whether or not you are a Christian. Is that correct? Yeah. I promise you, you can call yourself whatever you want to, but you start using the Lord's name vainly, and I will question you got anything. So that's just the way it is. There are things that, 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 you know, if you do those things, it makes everybody else go, whoa, wait a minute. What version did he get? Um, so what I really want you to focus your attention on is this, is let's take this abstain from the things polluted by idols to be a warning about don't let a worldview pollute a biblical view. Now, let me help you understand something here. Uh, the idol of today, the largest idol worship today is me, us. It's an individual thing. The idolatry of the world. Now, there are still people that will bow before Buddha and light a candle of incense or whatever and, and, and meditate. And there's, you know, there's people that in, in Africa that are still worshiping all these different uh, gods of nature and whatever. But predominantly, right here, right now, the biggest idol in America is we pretty much worship ourselves. We are all about us. So if the idol is me, then the practice of my religion is my worldview. And, and this is the way I practice my worldview. Uh, I'm going to give you four quick things. I'm sure there's a lot more, but these are the big ones. The big ones. Practical or personal truth replaces biblical truth. In the worldview, personal truth supersedes what the Bible says. My wants supersede God's wants. I mean, let's be honest. How many Christians know what the Bible says, 
but they do what they'd rather do. Hello? Yes, major. Bible, the Bible's really clear. This is the will of God, and yet this is not really what I choose. I really choose this over here. But praise God for grace, right? In the worldview, rights and wrongs are not black and white. They're not. They're situationally driven. And then culture dictates ethics. Now, those are four worldviews that if you have a biblical worldview, you will not let those things poison how you think, how you practice your faith. When these concepts are getting into the heart and minds of Christians, the bottom line, folks, is this. They begin to pollute your life. Stay away from those idolatry things that pollute your life. These things pollute our life. If I was going to pretty much give you a warning today, I could easily just go right back here to exactly what James said to go out there and make sure all the Gentiles know, and it's this, abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, except that's probably not the way I would say it. For us today, I would probably say it, stay away from the world's ideology. Stay away from the world's ideology. Why? Because the world's philosophies and biblical truths are not on the same plane. And yet today, it's like it's, like it's an option. But guys, World, the Bible, biblical truth is here and world truth is way over here. They are, not, they are not on the same plane. They are nowhere close to each other. And yet the church, if it allows the worldview to start affecting its biblical view, it starts bringing Christianity and the church this way. Because I promise you the worldview is not going to quit. They're not going to back down. They're going to stay strong. They're going to they're gonna bombard your minds 24-7. So you're trying to get you to think like this. Now, I know that it would be nice if there was this place right here, but the Bible says there is a narrow path that leads to him. There is a wide path that leads to destruction, and there is no middle path. It's a biblical view or it's a worldview. It's what the Lord says or it's what we want. And if I take my wants and I try to uh, and bring them into my biblical view, to, it creates a pollution or a compromise that gets me right here. I think the most dangerous thing that's going on in America is a slow poison of Christians' thinking. A slow poison trying to mix a little worldview into a biblical good theology. I'm going to give you one. You ready? Going to church is good. Folks, that is a worldly theology. That's a worldview. You see, when you take the mentality, going to church is good, then you say, you know what? It's a good thing to do. And I try to do it when I can. 
But when I go to a biblical worldview or a biblical view, when I come over there, church is not a good thing. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. So if I don't get that into my understanding, then church always has this place over here, sort of gray area. But when I get it into the biblical way that God has planned for it, this, remember what I said in the beginning, this is his body on the earth. And you're either in his body or you're not in his body. You don't get in, get out, get in, get out. And Sunday morning is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you are part of the body of Christ. You're not, you're not attending every now and then. You are in the body of Christ. You are connected to the body. You are giving something to the body. You are receiving something from the body. Your life is connected to the body of Christ. That far supersedes the whole mentality that I can go to church on Sunday because it's good. It's a lifeline. Here's the thing. The worldview is, is propagated 24-7. It's bombarding your mind in everything around us. <clears throat> and if we're not careful, it will shift our priorities. I shouldn't eat that donut because I'm belching it up terribly. It will shift our priorities. It will capture our focus. And it will diminish our effectiveness. Did you get that? What is, what, well, I don't see what the big deal is about a little worldview. No, it is a big deal. Because that little bit of poison begins to shift how we, what we focus on. It begins to shift what, what is important to us and it begins to diminish our effectiveness. And if you didn't notice it, I just described the church in America who has embodied worldview after worldview after worldview so that it is no longer effective. I'm going to say something that sounds horrible. But I think there's a whole lot of churches out there that have left the Bible, gone to a worldview, and they would do us better to just shut the doors. Because all they're doing now is propagating poison. Only the word of God will change lives. Only the word of God will correct the mess that we might call our society, our today. All right. This may rub you wrong, but I, if I haven't done it already, I'm trying really hard. So here we go. No, I'm not trying. You do not need to understand and spend any time in what a worldview is. You just need to know a biblical view. 
You don't, you don't need to, well, I want to try to understand them. That's like, I'm going to take drugs for a little while and see what that life is like. You don't need to poison your mind by some worldview. You just need to get your biblical view on track. That's what you need to do. I'm going to make it really simple. The only opinion you need is the Bible opinion. Hello? That's the only thing you really need is what does the Bible say? Because if you have a biblical view and you know what the Bible says, trust me, everything in your life will be better. Because you're not poisoned. You're not compromised. Well, pastor, I like thinking for myself. I like to just gather the facts and make a decision. That sounds exactly like what happened in the garden. God said this, but I think this. Look where that got her. Look where, look where that always gets us. You may not agree with this. I raised my kids with what's called instant obedience. Okay, you don't have to like it. This is not a parenting class. I'm just going to tell you really quick, instant obedience. Now, I'm going to tell you why we taught them that, okay? I don't want you to question when I tell you to do something. Do it. Now, if you want to talk about it after you've done it, we'll talk about it. But the first thing I want you to do is just do it. Why? Because I said so. And you may not like my reasoning, but you know what? The Bible needs you to just obey it. We're never going to understand all of it until we get to heaven. Well, why was I supposed to do that, Lord? Well, God will explain it when you get there. Right now, you just need to do it. And why? Because it's, it's, it's his way of protecting you. It's his way. Because, you know, I mean, really and truly, if you got one of those kids that don't believe what you say, and you, you go, get out of the street. And they go, why? Get out of the street. Because I said so but I'm having fun. Well, after a little bit of that, there's going to be this boom, boom. When your kid got mowed down and now it's a little late for them to understand why they should have obeyed to begin with. Makes sense in my mind. Anyway, go to the second one. Abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, we have to remember that the Gentiles had no biblical views of sex, okay? They were not raised like we, I mean, if you stop and consider marriage, the sanctity of marriage and all that, that is called a what? A Judeo-Christian influence. Yeah, because it, it, it's, a, it's a biblical principle. Well, they didn't have that. It was in, their, in the Gentile world and the nations around during the time outside of the Jewish people, predominantly prostitution was everyday kind of stuff. What we have today, pretty normal. You're with this person and then you get tired of that and then you're with this person and whatever. That was pretty mentality. That was pretty much the mentality of Jewish, of the Jewish, of the Gentile people. So one of the things that they felt like was really important to communicate to them was flee sexual immorality, abstain from sexual immorality. 
And Paul will address this. I mean, he will address this to the Roman church. He will address it to Corinthians, to Galatians, to Ephesians, Thessalonica. And in fact, in Thessalonica, it's almost like he's doing exactly what he was told to do. Because he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So why did they pass this on? Well, let's look at a few things. One, sexual immorality historically has proven that it is the beginning of the end for a civilization. When, when, when sexual immorality is normal and natural, a civilization begins to deteriorate from the inside out. And then what happens is, is because there is no morality in the sex, then before you know it, it's, it's going into all different kinds of deviations. And, and Paul writes something that's very, very important. He wrote, wrote it to 1 Corinthians, and I, I want to make sure you get this. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And what does that say? God never intended for sex to be casual. Never. The world has a mentality that, well, if we're consenting adults and we are enjoying ourselves and we're not hurting anybody and all that kind of stuff, eh, worldview. The biblical view and the truth of the matter is this, is that every time there is an engagement in sex, and I'm sorry if I've got some of the kids over, put your fingers in your ears, you don't want your kids here. Every time there is an engagement of sex, that is not connected with a, a relationship and love, it begins to steal from your heart and from your emotions. So you may think it's just casual. We're just meeting each other's needs. But the truth of the matter is you're giving something away from you that you can never get back. You're damaging literally your emotions, your psyche. God didn't create us that way. And right on the other side of that is the fact that when sex is inside of a marriage, it creates health. It creates emotional stability the way God planned it. It was very important for the wholeness of the Gentile people to begin to understand God's way of looking at sexuality. And so they said, you know what? We're not going to make them do this. We're not going to make them do this. We're not going to add all these things. But you know, there's a few things they got to understand. And one of them is abstain from the world's view of everything. Two, abstain from sexual immorality. All right, let's go to the third one. How am I doing? Nah, not too bad. The third one is a two-part, I say. Abstain from consuming what has been strangled and from the blood. Fact of the matter, according to what I understand about some research, uh, if an animal is strangled, you have a very difficult time getting the blood drained out of it. Okay? So directly or indirectly, you're still involving blood in the animal when you eat the strangled animal. That was a no-no. 
And why was it a no-no? <clears throat> the Bible tells us that life is in the blood. The, what I'm going to call the absolute most sacred part of your life is the blood, symbolically. Why? Because when you, when you understand what Christ did, everything that Christ did was basically connected to the blood. His blood was spilled out, symbolic of them sacrificing that innocent lamb and putting the blood upon the altar. He became the blood that sanctifies and purifies. Amen? Blood's very important. So in that aspect of it, it would be very good for them to understand how important the blood is. But I want to go a step further than that. If they would honor this instruction, then when the Jewish people and the Gentile people came together to eat, everybody could eat. Because the Jewish people, there's no way around. They might love Jesus, but they ain't eating that blood sausage. And so when they instructed them, because you got to remember, what is the church? The church is not like this. Is there a Jew in here? Anybody Jewish? No, okay. So you know what? This is a passel of Gentiles. A gaggle, a gaggle of Gentiles. So we can all have bacon together, right? But if we were a congregation that was mixed between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and we were going to do as the first church did in the early days in Acts there three and four and all that, when they would come together and they would, they would eat together and they would praise God together and they would learn about God together. You notice there wasn't any Gentiles in that. It was all Jewish people at that time. Hey, you know what this message was? Unity matters. Unity. The church of Jesus Christ has got to be unified. And this is a simple thing that if, if we do this together, we can connect together, we can eat together, we can enjoy each other's company. But there's a bigger reason than all of that. And it's in the very last verse of the text. Look at that verse. It says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The only scripture the church had was the Old Testament, right? That's the only, that's the only thing they had. Uh, the only place where the general populace could be taught about the word of God was in the synagogues. Now, the early church got together, and what did they do? Well, they would talk about how Christ was fulfillment of the law, or fulfillment of the promises, and, and they would talk about the teachings of Jesus and how everything had to happen as, as it did for the purpose of salvation. But if they were going to talk any at all about the Word of God, they would have been using the Old Testament. <clears throat> When the Gentiles began to understand just these three or four, whatever you want to call them, these three or four requirements, 
They basically were doing the basics, okay? Not connected to an idol, not sexually immoral, and not eating the wrong blood, whatever. They literally were, were making it possible for them to be able to go into the synagogue. Because in the synagogue, then they could hear the law of Moses. They could, they could understand the things that, that, uh, that helped them to understand why Jesus did what he did and how he's the fulfillment of so many of the promises. Uh, so basically, i like to, for you to get it like this. The Jews looked at them and said, you know what? You don't have to become like us, but you really need to know what we know about God. Folks, that's just tremendously valuable. That's not Jews looking at Gentiles and going, well, you're sort of second rate, you know, and, and, and we're not going to put these laws upon you because you couldn't keep up with them anyway. And da, 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 da. No, in reality, what he offered up to them was, you know what, God, we don't, we don't expect you to become what we are. We don't expect you to have all these rules that we have. But you really do need to know the God that we know. And I want to encourage you to understand something, that that's just a good message to preach simply on the basis of this. Whatever God brings us into this place, what we need to have is our driving mentality is, is we just want to show you the God that we know. You just need to know the God that we know. Because if they know the God that we know, He's a big God and he can change their life forever and ever change their life. All right, so if anybody ever tells you the Old Testament's not important, well, I got news for you. That was all they had. It's what they, they, they wanted the Gentiles to also begin to learn about. And I'm gonna tell you something. Are you listening? You haven't, I haven't worn out your ears yet. You ready? We would not know a lot about God at all if it wasn't for the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, I love what Jesus did and I love how he, how he personalized it and how he brought us into a new relationship of a father with a son. But the reality of it is the, the, the vast knowledge that we have about God is Old Testament. And Jesus was the completion of it. All right, I'm gonna give you two verses here while, and I, I finish. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? Paul's gonna teach that. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. John 1, 1, this we know about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When did Jesus show up? He's always been. He became flesh and blood, but he's always been. Genesis 1 shows us God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that is not a reference that, that faith is built upon what we know about Jesus Christ. Faith is built upon everything we know about God. And even though I love seeing the, 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 the miracles of Jesus and his sacrifice for my salvation, folks, there is transforming power when I study 
the Israelites. And I see a God who pulls them out of Egypt only for them to rebel in the wilderness. And after he gets them back on track and takes them into the promised land, they get all fat and sassy and forget him. And he has to raise up prophets to get them back on track. And then they go back to doing their own thing. And he raises up somebody like Samuel. God is so faithful and so patient. And I see that in the Old Testament more than I see it in the New Testament. I see his everlasting, continuous devotion to his name, to his word, to his promises, to his people. We know a lot about God because of the Old Testament. Would you stand? I'm going to pray, but before you break and go, I'm going to give you one instruction. So let's pray first. Father, I pray that we will not get bogged down as we're going through Acts, but that we will let you speak new life into us. Because everything is relevant. Everything is relevant. Lord, what you, what you communicated as the message to the Gentiles who had become believers is the very same thing that needs to be preached in the pulpit today. We need biblical overworld view. We need to become serious about this immorality that is plaguing even the churches. And Lord, we need to put a high price on unity. And I thank you, God, that though you are doing these things in our midst here, we need to understand it is you doing these things in our midst. Because you want us to be the healthy church that can have good influence on others. Lead us, lead us, make your word to be more desirable than ever. And I praise you, I praise you that your work is the church and God, your work is is always your focus. Thank you, help us be that healthy body that beautiful bride, in Jesus' name, amen.